The History of Alternative Podcast. A historic look back at everything alternative. Pop punk has been a part of our call letters since the beginning, and the genre has been around for a lot longer than that. From its beginnings with bands like Ramones and Buzzcocks, pop punk has been there, evolving through each new decade. The 80s saw the rise of West Coast pop punk, including Descendants and the Mr. T experience. The 90s saw a pop punk, saw a pop punk explosion. You try saying that that put genre defining bands like Green Day and Blink-182 on the map. We also got the Warp Tour in the 90s, and that only recently went away. Rolling into the 21st century, we got the pop punk variants of emo and screamo. And the pop in pop punk was underscored by bands like Good Charlotte and Plain White Tees. Awesome band, Plain White Tees. And pop punk continues to grow. Most recently, we've seen Machine Gun Kelly tweak and auto-tune the script. The bottom line, pop punk has been and remains one of alternative music's most stable subgenres. This is the History of Alternative podcast. I'm James Van Ossel, and that's John Manley. JVO, in preparation for this episode, I listened to a ton of pop punk, like hot topic assistant manager levels of pop punk. And my algorithms may never be the same. The History of Alternative podcast is furnished by St. Xavier University. St. Xavier University educates students for competence, character, and career success through high-quality programs and clear college-to-career pathways. Celebrating 175 years, that's a long time, of rich mercy and a Catholic tradition. At SXU, you'll find the best in you. So as we dive into pop punk this week, a disclaimer is probably in order. There's a chance with, with the rich history of pop punk, we probably won't mention your favorite artist as, as we cover this topic. There's a lot to go through and to help us dig into the topic is a Grammy, Tony, VMA, an American Music Award nominee, a guy who knows his way around pop punk. He knows his way around writing melodies and hooky songs. Tom Higginson of Plain White Tees. Tom, what is pop punk? Oh, wow. Hitting, hitting the, the hard hitting questions right off the bat, huh? What is pop punk? Um, well, you know, it's funny because punk music in general is a bit of, uh, you know, uh, anti-pop, right? That's the point of punk rock. It's like against the mainstream. Um, and so I think pop punk is kind of that in-between where it's like bands are kind of like want to say F you to, you know, mainstream music, but also kind of want to write a catchy song or want, you know, they have hooks in their songs or whatever. Um, so I think pop punk, it, it's kind of an oxymoron, you know, it, kind of uh, in a way. But yeah, it's a bunch of like, I think, punk rockers that don't really fit in and don't want to fit in. But at the same time, they love pop music or love, you know, like the Ramones, for example, we're just kind of trying to write songs like pop songs from the 1950s and they were in the late seventies, you know, it was like, like everybody loves a good pop song. So yeah, pop punk is just kind of like people that don't really want to fit in, but they want to, they like, you know, good music or catchy music. And they want to infuse that into their punk rock mentality. Let's start with the Ramones. Is that ground zero? I, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Consider this. The first three Ramones albums were released within a year and a half of one another in the late 70s. Wow. How's that for prolific? <laughs> yeah, that's like some Beatles, Beatles action. I mean, when you're only writing a minute and a half long songs, though. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how hard can that be, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's the, all, another beauty of, of punk rock and pop punk. It, it seems so, e you know, that bands like the Ramones and Green Day make it seem so easy that it, it, it's, you know, if you listen to Led Zeppelin, 
it's hard to be like, oh, I want to do that. Like, no, I can't do that. You know, <laughs> nobody can do that. But you listen to the Ramones and you think, wait, I can do that. You know, so it, it encourages you. I know for me, when I was starting out, definitely encouraged me, you know, listening to, um, you know, the early alternative of, you know, uh, WKQX, like uh, just all of that stuff. It was it was amazing, but it wasn't unattainable, you know, and I think that's what, what gave me and a, a lot of other kids just that that courage to grab a guitar and to even even attempt music. But isn't it that the way they look, that's another thing is like the way they look is so crazy and so unique that that's almost part of what makes them so legendary with the leather jackets and the the goofy like, you know, bull haircuts and everything. It was like it was they look like a bunch of aliens up there. For real. And it was like it just all worked. It's like the perfect storm. It's like the true punk side of the Ramones is their aesthetic, right? Like the leather jacket, the pins, like the whole, you know, six foot seven, 85 pound dudes just wailing <laughs> away. Like it's such a iconic. Now everyone just tries to do that, right? Like that is, that is the punk rock aesthetic. Absolutely. Yeah. So if we take, say the Ramones started this whole thing, which uh, sorry to every hardcore punker out there that's like, how dare you? But you're not wrong. You know, I think you could probably have to throw the buzzcocks into that mix as well. Like, for sure. The, the first couple punk bands, I mean, punk, pop punk kind of started from the start of punk in a way when you really look back at it. Like, these bands started to think about melody versus just rah, 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 and the three chords and the truth. And it kind of lingers in the background until. I guess the early 90s, post-grunge, you had this band come out that, to me, I think is really the, maybe not the first pop-punk band, but the first with the label pop-punk. And that, to me, has to be Green Day. Hang on. You, you, can't, you, can't, you cannot leapfrog past the 1980s and go right to Green Day. <laughs> you, you cannot skip past Descendants. I can, and I did. You can't skip past Lookout Records, which Green Day was spawned from, but you can't. I mean, Mr. T experience gets fucked in every discussion about pop punk. Every single one. I just did it. I just did it. (laughs) They should have. They should have been in that conversation with Green Day. But I mean, so much happened. I mean, Descendants, I think, created the modern blueprint. If Ramones were the Rosetta Stone and Buzzcocks and that singles going steady album were were the, the templates. I mean, I think Descendants really were one of the most important bands, if not a top five important band in the genre. Am I crazy, Tom? Uh, No, I mean, I would definitely lump them in there. But, you know, it's funny for me. I don't know the Descendants as well as I know the Ramones, as well as I know Green Day. So I think John definitely had a point where the Ramones kicked it off. But it, it wasn't really until Green Day that it became a like just accepted in the mainstream. I think that's maybe where, where John was, why that leapfrog happened, if I'm not mistaken. John, but he of likes, course, he likes was, you more. <laughs> yeah. No, there was, of new, course, new favorite guest, of, new favorite guest. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, but yeah, obviously you can't overlook those bands, but yeah, that was, that was a whole different thing. Of course, the eighties, you, you know, was a whole different scene. Um, and it, maybe it took that, you know, the coming of Nirvana and the grunge movement to make way for a band like Green Day and to bring it out into the mainstream, even though Mr. T was so was catchy as all hell. And, you know, all, all, so many of those bands, it was Green Day that was kind of doing the, the perfect 
you know, the right thing at the right place at the right time uh, moment for sure. James, how about this? I'll give you this. Green Day, if Green Day is the nirvana of pop punk, the descendants can be the pixies. How about that? Well said. That's good. That's good. Good By the way, is Nir- this is good. <laughs> is Nirvana? Uh, I mean, I know they're not really pop punk. It's weird because they're not really. There's not a lot of pop. It, I don't know. Nirvana is is the exception of kind of all rules because Correct. they're so pop, but not but the farthest thing from pop. Um, and there's nothing really punk about them aside from their, you know, I guess attitude mm-hmm. and the fact that they use you know kind of not a lot of chords or whatever but they kind of do use a lot of chords like nirvana sounds very simple but is actually kind of complex um but i guess yeah to me as a kid when i was coming up you know that at that point when all these bands you know nirvana green day like we're talking about like i was like 13 14 years old so i honestly at that time you could put on weezer and green day and I didn't know, you know, obviously Green Day was more pop punk and Weezer was just kind of straight alternative, but I couldn't tell you the difference. You know, they both were like, sounded super distorted and super cool and, you know, had great catchy songs. Well, you go back to Nirvana. They were originally punk. Like if you listen to Bleach, that's pretty much a punk record, kind of mm-hmm. leaning into like almost metal. There's like, like, I mean, Negative Creep is as metal as you can get really, right? But you're right. Like Nirvana is such an interesting uh, band because they warped themselves into a, a, a pop band, really, at the end of the day. You know, um, you know, Kurt always and never even ran away from saying like, yeah, I was trying to write pop songs just with mm-hmm. like massive distortion and a voice that it sounded like he was gargling razor blades. It totally. was just a different aspect of it. So is Nirvana a pop punk band? No. Are they a punk band? Kind of. I mean you could get there if you wanted to. I think that's one of the hardest things about doing a show like this and discussing pop punk is like, what is it? You know, like at what point do you, you know, I mean, you have to lump in bad religion and the offspring as like the beginning of I'm making up terms now, but I'm sure someone already has like mainstream radio punk. So does that count? Because I don't put them in the same world as like MXPX or Newfound Glory. I can't, I just can't bring myself to do it. Right. So it's like, what is it? Like what has to happen for a band to be considered pop punk? I think it's a real question. Like, is it a, is it like a big jangly hook? Is that what's the trick? I don't know. I think it's the themes, isn't it? Dick hmm. jokes. You got to add dick jokes. <laughs> well, I think, I think relationships, I mean, songs love songs relationship songs teen angst is a part of it and going back to descendants i think suburban life is part of it too hmm. i never took it that far i never thought that much about it but i agree it's like you know bad religion is singing about all these really heavy global issues and then yeah blink 182 comes along and they seem even though like to me, Bad Religion is a pop punk band, but yeah, totally worlds apart from like a Blink-182. So yeah, that's interesting, James. I never really thought about the, the, uh, the messages having, having a part in this. Well, let's go back to John's. John got really excited, I think, about Green Day Dookie. And let's, let's go back to that. Let's go back to that year in particular, because, oh my God, when punk broke and when pop punk broke in the 90s and 
1994, so much was going on. I mean, Tom mentioned that Weezer debut. Uh, there was Bad Religion. Speaking of them, Stranger Than Fiction, their Bad Religion's first album for a major label. Dookie, Smash. Oh, my God. What a time. Mm-hmm. Didn't that come out right when Kurt passed as well, didn't it? Yeah, more or less, yeah. I think so. I, I want to say like Dookie happened right after because that's such a uh, that album is kind of a sea change in a sense because that was really when it went from every band being from Seattle being angry and doing that whole thing to the rise of a Blink-182 getting on the radio and all of that, right? Yeah, hmm. I mean, Dookie was a big moment. I mean, I, when Green Day did their record release show, it was at the Vic and it was I think it was like a really fast sellout and it was one of the most anticipated, talked about, buzzed about, buzz about shows in town. And that was a, a, a Vic show. Like they were mm-hmm. ascendant at that point, And then it was never looking back from there. Wow. Um, I love that. That's interesting. The point of, yeah, I see, I was, like I said, a little bit just on the cusp of being slightly too young at that moment to remember, like, like I remember Kurt Cobain's death for sure. It was a huge moment. I think I was like a freshman in high school, but I don't really remember, but you're, you're, I think you're totally right about the timing of it with then green day, but it's like, maybe that was like, you know, because everybody with, with that was trying to be so kind of dark and sad with like Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, you know, of course, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, um, that maybe it's like once he died, it was like, it was the perfect timing to say like, well, cool. We love this like dirty, like, you know, the, the music that just sounded so raw, but like we needed to be kind of happier or we needed to be a little bit more fun because we just lost our, our icon. And so maybe that was like the green day Weezer moment to kind of come in and, and uh, just kind of move that, move that, that genre and that movement to a slightly, you know, more fun place. Which leads us directly into Blink-182. No band has ever had more fun, (laughs) it seems like, than than Blink-182. If Green Day started the trend, I feel like Blink carried the torch. And maybe where Green Day kind of always... I always felt like Green Day wanted to make sure that everyone knew that they were punks. Well, Billy Joe Armstrong has said in the past, he had, he's always taken issue with the pop punk label. He's always said, you're either punk or you're not. That, that's always been his thing. Nice. Yeah. That's Green Day. Fair. Definitely. <laughs> I feel like Green Day, they, they never wanted to be like, they had fun with it, but they, they never wanted to be, make a joke out of it where I think blink, they, they took it to that level for sure. That's a great point. Yeah. I, I think green day was very serious and I, I think they didn't want to be penalized for writing really catchy tunes. And th- that's fair. Like that's a fair argument. Like it's not their fault that every chorus that Billy Joe made off that record is imminently singable. Like you can, everyone can sing along to all those records. That's not, it's not their fault. It's not a bad it's thing. Of- right kind of their fault but yeah, but right. in a good way, in a good way <laughs> right but, exactly but that's interesting though because in the 90s there was that thing where bands would explode and then they would try to course correct for their audience afterward nirvana did it after nevermind they said you know what we're going to record with steve albini we're going to record something really really dark uh, 
Green Day tried to be maybe a little less pop on Insomniac rolling out of, of Dookie. I think we saw a lot of that kind of fan service course correction throughout the 1990s. Yeah. Weezer with Pinkerton as well. Oh, exactly. Yeah. That's the best example, probably. Best example, yeah. Um, it's interesting you say course correction, though, because um, it, it's weird to think that, like, you, you, I don't know, you, you connect on such a huge level, like a Nirvana Nevermind or a Weezer Blue album, or of course, Dookie, like we're talking about. And to think, like, oh, wait, I screwed up. Like, I don't, <laughs> where does that thought come in, you know? Um, but in all of those cases, those follow-up albums, even though they did take a little bit of a turn, you know, to get a little bit more uh, or less less mainstream, still were extremely catchy and extremely um, digestible, you know? So almost almost solidifying them as legends even more so, whether or not they were trying to do that, I don't know. If Green Day is the... Um true breaking jump off point of pop punk into blink 182 the pinnacle of this whole genre has to be the warp tour right oh yeah that's like the uh uh that's like what high school punk rock like high school or like college or something i don't know what you'd call it um or punk rock summer camp as a lot of people did call it but yeah but yeah that's like if you want to be anywhere near that genre Warp Tour is essential. Like you can't skip over that for sure. When did Plain White Tees first do Warp Tour? Um, Jesus, we did it a few times. I want to say a couple dates in 2003. And then we did like half of it in 2005 and in 2006, I believe. So yeah, we were on like three different Warp Tours. I and it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was like, uh, I mean, it was a nightmare, you know, to our bodies and to our, <laughs> you know, mental states, because it's like, you really have to, you know, you drive overnight, get there, basically have to load all your own stuff in, do it, the tent, get your gear by your, you know, by the stage. You don't even find out what time your set time is until that morning. And then you just kind of have to be on, you have to go be sitting at the tent, selling your own gear, be super, you know, talking to people and be on and try to, you know, get people to, to like you or buy a t-shirt or whatever. Oh, come watch our show. We're playing at seven o'clock, whatever. Then you got to play an awesome show and then go back to the merge tent and then pack the whole thing up at the end of the night, drive overnight and do it all again. It's like, it was a pretty grueling tour. Um, but I guess at the time you're just like, man, I just, this is something we have to do. Cause this is like, so awesome and what an awesome you know opportunity for a band that otherwise you know would never be in front of crowds like that or would never have that kind of audience or just you know the social element to meet and hang out with bands that you loved um that were you know a little bit bigger than you or whatever i mean super important like it was a genius genius idea by kevin lyman you know um and it obviously it was super successful and and did its thing for a long time. So, well, the yeah. work tour is, or was the longest running touring festival in North America. Wow. Right. Huh. I didn't know that. That's great. Yeah. So it, it definitely, you know, hearing you describe what that life was like for playing white tees and every other band on the road, 
I have no doubt that was grueling. I have no doubt it was emotionally exhausting, physically exhausting. That to me sounds like the dream when you're when you're practicing with your friends, trying to write songs as a kid. That sounds like the fulfillment of like your childhood dream. Absolutely. And that's always the way I, I looked at it. I'm always I'm like the optimist in the band. You know, like we'd have the shittiest day. Our, our gear got stolen at one point and it was like, OK, well, what are we going to do next? You know, like how do we it's like nothing really stopped me. So, I mean, it's it, it, there are there were plenty of moments such as Warp Tour where if you wanted to, you could find it to be very, uh, you know, you could see the negatives in it. But, yeah, I always looked at it, like I said, as kind of the more positive, like, man, what a great opportunity. We're getting to play for thousands of kids and we're getting to hang out with all these bands. And, um, yeah, it's like it's funny. Hindsight, of course, is 2020. But it's like I don't even think at the time we knew how cool it was, even though we knew it was cool. But, yeah, when you're in it, when you're when you're grinding it out like that, it's kind of hard to, to be able to see it as like, wow, this is like, we're going to look back at this as like the best times of our lives, you know, like the good old days. Uh, but it, it certainly was that. Who would have thought playing uh, in a parking lot in Tempe, Arizona under 150 degree temperatures would be <laughs> the best time. Well, I, don't, I don't know if the Arizona dates were the best times, but yeah. <laughs> Can confirm. I worked in Arizona during the heyday of the Warp Tour and it was, that was always a big summer thing and it was always like this has to happen in december we cannot be doing this <laughs> so bad oh yeah oh yeah i've always wanted to know this were, were all the bands cool or were they as like segmented as the crowd because you know that's the funny thing about the warp tour and when you try to you know be all encompassing is like you had your scene kids and your punk rockers and your emos and all of those kind of things. And it was very like pockets of people. Was it like that with the bands too? Or were you guys all pretty much getting along and having a good time? You know, I mean, they, it, it was pretty much, I don't remember any like crazy assholes or anything like that. You know, I mean, maybe Fat Mike here and there, but you you wanted that out of Fat Mike, you know. For sure. That was his whole, his whole shtick. That's a tombstone um, right there. <laughs> kind of an asshole. But, yeah, but right, isn't that kind of what he, yeah, he wants right. it to be. Um, but yeah, I mean, everybody, it's, it's cool the way they set up work for, I'm sure you guys know, but it's like, you know, the lunch, like the, the catering and stuff, it's like everybody is there, eats at the same, same place, gets their food. Like after the, every show, there's like a barbecue after they tear down and any of the bands that are on warp tour from the biggest to the smallest can go and hang out and get some food and stuff. So they try to make it um, like a community kind of a thing. So nobody feels left out or, you know, nobody feels like too much of a big shot. It's they kind of even, even the, the playing field. So um, yeah. So I don't really remember anybody, you know, being too big of a diva or, or an asshole or anything. So you, this is, you started doing Warp Tour at the turn, turn of the century. That was, as we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, an interesting time when words like emo became part of the, the popular nomenclature, emo and screamo. Let's talk about that. When did that word become part of your consciousness? Jeez. I mean, yeah, you're right. Probably right around that time, right? I think uh, obviously it- bands like, like Thursday, um, they they were one of the first bands that I think were kind of doing the screaming thing that I remember, but then the used came and the used kind of turned that into a, a mainstream kind of phenomenon thing. 
Um, that's my recollection, at least. I don't know about you guys. Uh, that squares with my memory. He yeah. uses a great <laughs> example with that. And I mean, there was a, definitely emo stuff coming out of the Midwest where we're all from. Champagne had its own like cottage scene downstate mm. brewing. I will say the Get Up Kids also were, in my opinion, the like that was the highlight of, you know, the emo thing was kind of bubbling. And then you had the Get Up Kids. I remember a, um, a Vagrant Records tour at the Metro that was the Get Up Kids at the drive-in. And uh, I, I want to, I, I, maybe I'm going crazy here, but I feel like it was like the anniversary at the drive-in, the Get Up Kids, and either Reggie in the full effect or saves the day. Like it was a stacked. Yeah. Uh, I'm probably maybe adding one too many on there. I don't know if Reggie and the Get Up Kids would have played because James was in both bands, but. Um, it was like a freaking like greatest hits day at the Metro. And I just remember that was the first time I ever saw at the drive-in. And I don't know if you guys have had the privilege of seeing them live back in oh the day. God. It was like mind blowing. Like nothing like, you it. Know, yeah, nothing like it, like a fucking tornado on stage. Um, but sounding somehow perfectly in their perfectly dissonant way, you know, it was, that was, that blew my mind. Um, so anyway, James, I know you were going somewhere, but I had to throw in about, you know, that moment with the get up kid, Jimmy world then yes. kind of came out of that and they took the emo. They were kind of the band responsible for taking emo to a more mainstream, you know, getting some radio and, and turning it, um, you know, into a more emo pop thing, which then kind of fallout boy obviously came along their coattails and they blew it up even more. So did you plain white tees and fallout boy cross pollinate at all? in the early aughts in Chicago. So totally. So Damar playing like T's drummer, actually he was from, cause we were, you know, in the sub suburban scene, there was a couple different scenes happening uh, at the same time, obviously plain white T's were like the West suburbs. So we had us, you know, lucky boys, um, the dog and everything, you know, that was kind of our little scene. And then over on the, uh, in the North suburbs, it was fallout boy. The Academy is, 504 plan and then knockout which was damar our drummer's old band um so damar was really tight with fallout boy and yeah i remember we, we did one of our first tours when we we both started touring there was like a, a very small tour we played the creepy crawl in st louis to give you uh you know an example of a t- the tiny rooms but it was plain white tees fallout boy and yellow card oh playing God. tiny oh, shows terrible. like that yeah <laughs> Um, you know, so that's yeah, on Paul, somebody's wall, by the way, like, you know, like the poster of that is on somebody's wall. Like, dude, I saw these <laughs> freaking bands all at this little last place way totally. back when. Yeah. And what a show. I mean, it was, it was just so much fun to do those little rooms with, you know, cause all of us were tiny bands at that time, you know, none of us had any, you know, uh, didn't have the crystal ball to know what was, what was about to happen. Um, but yeah, fallout boy, man, they were always, uh, super down to earth, super good dudes. Um, and yeah, I don't really see him too much lately, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I always had really, really great times and great experiences with them. What do you think it was about fallout boy? Like that band got a lot of backlash, like a lot, myself included at the time. (laughs) Um, what do you think it was that like caused this all of a sudden, like, repellent like oh what is like too far like what do you think it was was it just success 
Success. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, because they, you know, I don't know. In my opinion, they were kind of blowing up like on their very first album, um, which was I take this to your grave, like before they signed to a major. Um, I was even I, I mean, I never like gave them any shade or anything, but I was like, wow, like I'm kind of surprised that it's getting so big at that level because I was like, this record's awesome. But like, man, these kids are going crazy for this. Like I didn't quite get it. Um, and then when they made their first major label album, which I want to say is from under the cork tree, was it their first I believe their so, yeah. major label debut? But when I heard some of those songs like dance, dance, sugar, we're going down. Then I was like, wow, fallout boy freaking killed it. Like, any any doubt or any like oh i don't quite get it like that those songs totally like i gave the thumb you know then it, it all made sense and that was kind of right around the time when we were doing warp tour and they were on warp tour that was like what 2005 2006 right around there um and so we got to see kind of you know right there uh that that thing kind of blowing up for them cuz they yeah they were kind of already on the verge of blowing up but then that just exploded it and of course that turns into fall out boy panic at the disco paramore good charlotte's and like full on at that point i feel like there's there's a split between pop punk and emo and emo becomes its true self i guess you would say right <laughs> like there, there's the evolution <clears throat> sure so you go from the fallout boy that turns into fallout boy panic at the disco paramore full emo emo becomes its own thing is that that kind of has to be where the fall begins though correct yeah meaning like 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 it not, got uh, it, it <clears throat> i don't want to say it flew too close to the sun because that would be considering it like intentional but that's when it got to a place where it was so big that there was nowhere else to go but down right uh yeah probably right it's like once you get to that level <clears throat> you know I, in my opinion panic at the disco i love panic i'm a huge panic fan we've toured with them a few times i've always been i've always kind of set them and this is my own personal bias but set them above that genre and that scene they were just they did things so unique and creatively that to me it transcended you know the emo and the pop punk genre and so maybe that's kind of what you're saying. Like once it was like, once it got that big where it was kind of morphing and becoming these different things. And then every pop punk band kind of tried to do like the fallout boy and panic yep. at the disco thing. It's like, once you have everybody emulating what you're doing, then it's kind of over. Right. That's, that's, I think maybe what you're saying. Yeah. And to like, and I think too, when you like watch these bands, you know, you come out of the 90s where we were just talking about it, where everyone was trying to run away from fame. <laughs> and you move into the early 2000s where unabashedly they were like, put me on TRL, let's go. <laughs> and I think that was jarring. It's a very generational. I feel like this whole genre is very generational where there's like, if you're a, like, I think I'm considered like ex-ennial or whatever. It's very hard to go from sound garden to, to you know mxpx that's 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 a stretch that's difficult and then from mxpx to fallout boy like we've gone a long way from what i'm comfortable in and that's a challenge right 
Yeah, isn't it strange? I'm sorry, James, go ahead. No, I, I think John touched on something really interesting. And I think there is that philosophical shift. And there was a time where, yes, everyone was running away from success. It, was, it wasn't cool to be popular. It wasn't cool to be famous. And now people are running toward the light. And it's just, it, it's such a different shift in perspective. And I think it informs the bands of today. I mean, I think it's allowed someone like Machine Gun Kelly to do what he's done with the genre. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I know just from experience, like I remember back in the day, like, you know, bands would like not allow their music to be used in commercials or in TV or anything like that. And I think, you know, it kind of coincides though, if you think about it with um, the music industry and record sales slowing down, all of these things that probably did really well for bands you know, monetarily to be able to continue being, you know, do it, making music and things like all of that started slowing down from the industry standpoint. So then it was like, well, shit, we need to make money to be able to do this. So getting some big commercial or, you know, some TV placement all of a sudden was like, well, like that's kind of the new, the new record sales or the new, you know, way of, of funding this project and funding our careers. So, you know, it might have something to do with that, that shift you're talking about. Um, also, I definitely do, you know, if you think about it, that's kind of the same time technology with people having phones and probably filming, you know, at concerts and things like mm-hmm. that. Meet and greets. I don't know when that, you know, that's kind of been around, wasn't around, well, maybe in the 90s at Tower Records, I met Weezer and, you know, Tower Records would always do the, the meet and greets when, when bands would put albums out, you know, but nowadays as you guys know it's like you there's a meet and greet every show either you have to it's for the radio station or you buy the vip package or whatever it is so all of those things accessibility has just completely gone from like ooh, the only way you can find out about your favorite bands are from you know some random mtv thing or rolling stone magazine or something or q101 whatever hearing them talk to now it's like over accessibility so I don't know. All, I think all that stuff probably contributes to that shift. Tom, if I were to buy a VIP package to Plain White Tees, what does that get me? Um, well, it's really exciting, James. I recommend it to everybody. <laughs> um, <clears throat> like you get to come in and watch, see a sound check. Which is always super cool. That's something no one gets to see. Totally. Super cool. Um, and maybe even we'll like, you know, play some throat, you know, whip a song out that you, you, re- you request or something, you know, if we're feeling up to it. Um, but just kind of like a general, uh, you know, hang out and, you know, you get some merchandise and you get to hang with the band before the doors open. Also getting in the venue before doors open is nice. I remember when I was a kid, I would always wait in line for like five hours before a show so that I can get up to the front, you know, so the VIP meet and greets grant you that kind of access. Um, and yeah, just that accessibility to like talk to, to the band, you know, just more as, you know, people one-on-one rather than just being in the crowd and, you know, watching them on stage, which I don't know if that's, I mean, it's, it's awesome, but man, as we all know, it was, there's something really magical about not getting to meet your, your idols or not getting t- too close to that that band you love or that artist you love because then there can you can maintain that like M- you mystique. know the mis- mystery exactly yeah. yeah 
I, maybe I that's just a, you know, old guy, you know, who's seen both sides of it kind of, rev, you know, being nostalgic for, for that mystery, but I don't know. I don't know which way is better. I guess I don't think either way is necessarily better. Just two different ways of looking at it. I think we've all been that kid standing outside the venue for hours. Metro in particular, that was the venue you'd get super early to the venue for. And if it was cold, you know, jacket be damned. I'm not bringing my jacket inside. I'm going to stand outside (laughs) in a T-shirt. I don't care. I'm fine. I'm fine. Everything's okay. Parents would scold you on the way out of the house. This is just, you know, I'm with my friends. I'll be okay. It's all good. But you stand outside and then you press your way to the front of the stage. And that, I mean, there's fulfillment in that. There's something, it's an achievement you've unlocked. If you can make that press and be there right in front, it, it makes it all worthwhile. Absolutely. Yeah, that was me for sure. Us Midwesterners sure do love a little bit of suffering, don't we? We do. Totally. <laughs> the colder, the better. Yeah. We just gotta, we like feel this need to earn everything. It's amazing. It's amazing. All right. So That's Tom Higginson of Plain White Tees, before we cut you loose, the topic is pop punk. What are one or two indispensable songs in the genre that you just, you can't live without, whether you're touring or just driving to the grocery store? What are you listening to? Um, well, I mean, we got to touch on, I know I mentioned them earlier, but the smoking popes were a big one for me. Um, obviously being from Chicago that, that helped, um, you know, being able to go see them at some tiny venues back in the day in my formative years, you know, as a, as a budding musician and songwriter to have talent like that, that you can go see and really, you know, and, and Josh, again, you can, you know, they were kind of accessible. You could kind of talk to them after the show if you wanted to. That was always really, really a big deal for me. Um, so yeah, Smoking Popes, Let's Hear It For Love uh, is a big one. Um, I don't know. I mean, any any of their catalog, but if, if we're throwing it to somebody that might not know them, Let's Hear It For Love, I think it's a great starting point. Um, of course, we've already touched on, you know, the, the classics, Green Day and the Ramones. Um, Cretan Hop would might be my go-to Ramon song, um, or uh, Judy is a punk. Um, I mean Green Day, the entire Dookie album, as you said, John, is is pretty much flawless. Um, yeah, pop punk. I don't know. Again, if do we consider Weezer pop punk? Kind of, but kind of not. But again, that whole Blue album. Um, pretty untouchable. Buddy Holly is pretty punk rock. Um, great one. It's all power chords. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, then, you know, it's funny. There's a band we have, we never touched on simple plan. They're good friends of ours and they were actually the band that took plain white tees on one of our first ever, like big, like real tours, you know? So we've been great friends with those guys. Uh, and man, have they written some great songs in the genre? I'm just a kid. I still think yep. is one of the the best pop punk melodies. That's just such a beautiful. Obviously, it's kind of like the lyrics aren't necessarily deep, but the melodies are so beautiful in that song that can that can kind of stand up to anything. Um, well, and, and John talked about the the sense of humor that Blink 182 had. Simple Plan has just as good a sense of humor. I mean, that's from an album called No Pads, No Helmets, Just Balls. Exactly. Yeah, totally. Yeah. They weren't afraid to kind of be, again, it's that fine line of like, we're in on the joke and, and we are kind of the joke, but like, that's, 
we're just going to own that and ride it all the way to the top, you know? And again, I think with any of this, with any genre, with anything, as long as you have great songs, that's kind of all people really care about, you know? So, so all the other stuff is just aesthetic. Uh, like, do you want to be taken seriously a little bit more like green day, or do you want to have fun with it and be kind of jokey like blink 182? It doesn't really matter because I love them both. You know, it's like they both had great songs and that's what counts. Absolutely. 100% spot on. And maybe what you just said too, maybe is maybe that's the line, right? Where um, it was really fun and great when everybody was having a good time. And then the next wave came and took it real seriously. And you're like, slow down, you know? Sure. Sure. All right. So Tom Higginson of Plain White Tees, as we are about to send you off, what's what's on it? We're still early in 2021. What's on the horizon for the tees? Well, um, as you know, James, I've been doing uh, some side project stuff. I started a record label called Humans Were Here. Um, You've been giving Fairview some love, so thank you for that. Also launched a little 80s side project, 80s-themed pop music. I go, you know, a little bit into the pop punk. I can't help it, of course, but um, that's called Million Miler. So I'm putting out that album on May 10th. And uh, in the process of writing and demoing for a new Plain White Tees record. So hopefully there'll be some new Plain White Tees music by the end of the year as well. You're busy. I'm, I, yeah, you got it. I mean, I just love music. I love what I'm doing. So as long as there's, you know, good music out there, which there always is. And if, you know, it's a little bit slow, then you can dip back into some of your past favorites and always stay inspired. And yeah, just good music makes me want to, want to create good music i don't know it's it's a good cycle the history of alternative podcast is recorded at the 101 wkqx studios in chicago subscribe on apple google or wherever you get your podcasts don't do drugs stay in school 